Hey everybody, it's Matthew. I just thought I would drop this conversation as a bonus for the weekend. I talked with, I have a, I have a lot of interviews. I'm in the process of uh, editing right now and a couple more coming up. So this is a conversation from a few weeks ago I recorded with Brian. No poetry in this one, just uh, just some serious topics discussed dumbly and some dumb topics discussed seriously. Uh, Brian and I are highly inconsistent, <laughs> inconsiderate. I am sorry, and you're welcome. Please enjoy. Start, starting out, I, I know just uh, that it would be hard for you to resist as a lifelong pet lover um, congratulating me on the adorable new golden doodle that I got. So I don't know if you had me. Any warm or encouraging thoughts on that? On Congratulations. That? No, it's really, it's like a member of the family. There's, in my <laughs> mind, in my mind, there's no difference between a human being and a new dog. Oh, wait, there are a few. Um, <laughs> I'm actually, I, I'm sort of interested in this whole pet ownership thing because my wife's mom got a little adorable golden doodle um, that my kids have fallen in love with. And in pandemic Brooklyn, everybody got a dog, I guess. And they're all golden doodles. They're all golden doodles. <laughs> they are, they are, they are every single one. And they're all like, um, like a chosen from, you know, like the bespoke golden doodle breeder and everybody needed, needed to go out to a farm, you know, and that's yeah, part yeah. of the origin story of each one of these dogs. But like a couple things now that I've been spending a whole lot more time with dogs. And I realize this is like doing what's the matter with pet stand up is in nobody's wheelhouse. Like nobody wants to hear a Paul Reiser routine on why pets aren't as good as everyone knows pets are. But just the, the two observations that I've had recently um, and congratulations, by the way, I'm sure your dog is spectacular <laughs> and worthy of your love. Yeah. I would leave um, the rest of my family in the burning house and take the dog. Wouldn't we all? The, uh, so observation number one, and tell me if I'm wrong, because I, I don't have much experience with, with animals. I am severely allergic to cats. My lungs begin to shut down and dogs are uh, fine. I just don't want them licking my, my face. The, yeah. the two thoughts that, that I've had in the last couple of weeks is one, you always have to tie dogs down or else they will run away forever. <laughs> right. So this idea of like, like, oh, it's so they love me, unconditional love. Like, yeah, but if you don't tie a rope around its neck, it will literally run away forever. Like you've established a place where it gets all the food it wants, all the comfort, it's warm, it has affection, it has the people it theoretically loves. But if you don't tie it to something, <laughs> it will run away to its death, choosing never yeah. to come back. So that's that's my one sort of yeah. curiosity about what everybody thinks about this. The other right. thing is my very good friend's mother recently uh, died and she had a dog for, this dog is old and I, people years, years, sorry, in years, the dog is <laughs> like 10 solar or years. So solar years, the dog's like 10 or 15 or whatever. And the dog spent all the dog's time with my friend's mom. They were inseparable. It was like the thing about my friend's mom was the dog was always there. So my friend's mom suddenly died and it's tragic and awful. And it's oh clear that the dog doesn't give a shit. 
The dog is just the same dog. The dog has had no reaction, no change in personality. The dog eats the food. The dog goes for the walk with whoever took over the dog. So in my experience, I know that we all love our animals like a member of their family, but the dog would prefer to run to its death than spend time with you. And when you die, the dog isn't interested, doesn't change behavior, doesn't blink an eye. That just leads me to think that having wild animals in your house is more about the sort of affection that we need and like being able to purchase an affectionate being like it's like a plant but it kisses you in a way that humans kiss you so you associate it with human love when in fact it's not interested in this arrangement the 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 dog is not signed up for this the dog wants to be with the other dogs the dog family that you by the way kidnapped the dog from right yeah i mean any like any model we come up with for explaining dog ownership it has like instant horrifying associations with like slavery or you know uh indentured servitude or like i mean the the, the, i think like what the the closest comparison to the leash in terms of keeping the dog from running away is is a chastity belt because it's not that the dog will never come back like the dog will eventually come back it's just it's gonna go it's gonna go like fuck the whole town and like accidentally get run over and like well this is for your own good to control your evil impulses and to make sure that you remain loyal to me alone i mean it's like you have to embrace a a an otherwise totally foreign and uh, nauseating philosophy in order to take ownership of a dog. Yeah, I mean, right, like, but only like if we're going to cut out your balls or over exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. But that's only the case if you think a dog is worthy of human emotions. Because oh. once you say that the dog is a member of my family, or the dog is even capable of being compared to slavery, that imbues the dog with so much humanity, which the dog doesn't have, yeah. that then you leave yourself open to all of these challenges. Because like, yes, if your dog is allowed to have kids, you mostly don't let your dogs have kids. But when you do, you're like, well, what am I going to do with all these dog kids? You're like, right. here's a puppy. You're like, hey, have you, a puppy. But you don't give them, you sell them. You sell them for <laughs> yeah. cash. Right. Cash, so you're, you're yeah. separating the mothers from their children. Again, I don't care yeah. what happens to these dog children. So, right. I mean, I don't want to see anything tortured because like whimpering yeah, yeah. dogs is not my thing. But like, I, I don't think it matters 20 minutes after you give a puppy away what the mom thought. But for those who do, it's sort of yeah. baked in that you're not just going to let a dog live a dog life. You're going to control it in human ways while professing how important the dog is to your family and your daughters yeah. and your emotional well-being. Yeah. I mean, I'll say like the dog is not a member of my family. Like, because, you know, if-, if Okay, like, but you've had the dog for 20 minutes. You think that yeah. in uh, six years, your daughters won't discuss your dog oh. as a member of your family? Well, no, they already do, but they're children. And like, they don't, they're, I mean, I like, I mean, I, like, but what I, I about your many listeners who are grownups who do see dogs as members of their families? They're used to disagree with me. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, like, no, like I, I love the dog and I'm very affectionate with it. You love, you love the dog. How many people do you use the word love to refer to? Uh, oh, but see, that's the thing. It's like the bar for people is a lot different than the bar for like coffee or dogs or like, I love my, I got a new pair of gloves because my gloves got ruined. I love those gloves. Like, okay. But I think so like, yeah. you are, but with your definition, your use of the word love there yeah. is, is as you would love a thing, not as you would love a person. Yeah, because if my daughter bites two people, I don't have her put down. Right. 
Like that's like right. if a dog bites right. two human beings, then you have to have it lethally injected because it's not it's a danger. It's like, oh, you got one strike and that was it. Like no, I mean, like, no, I don't love it like I love a child or even a, I mean, but I think, I think like the, the key with the dog is actually, it's not so much that the dog loves you. I mean, I think like, like, I'll say like the dog is not a member of my family, but like I'm a member of the dog's family because the dog, it's like, it's like, well, he's not my best friend, but I'm his best friend. Cause like, what has he got going on? His life is pretty small. Oh, like, nothing because you've kidnapped him away from his family. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, yeah. And I big, big victory I, there. Yeah. yeah. I like ring a bell when I, we go outside to so, like, yeah, I'm, like slowly training her to have no world outside. Like, like, like having a dog is like, is like being the dad in dog tooth. I don't know if you've seen that movie where he like enslaves his children in a little imaginary cult land. It's dark. Yeah, it's sort of it's like a dark comparison. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I think it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like that. And, and uh, I, I mean, my, my theory is that the, the big draw for a dog and dogs are very affectionate um, and they're very stupid. I think they're also sort of existentialist. I think like they are sad when people die, but it's also like, like the dog has had like a much rougher and darker experience of life than you have and has a much bleaker sense of like what a connection or attachment or meaning is. And so it's like, well, all this is passing. So let's just like have a bone and go for a walk. Like, I think, I think like the dog is like pretty sad when the owner that it loved dies, but it's also like, you know, also I was kidnapped at the age of eight weeks. And Wait, but you were the one who kidnapped the dog. Right. You're, no, you're saying no, like, oh, isn't saying, this like, like my dog's a bit of an existentialist because now you start using the passive voice. All these terrible things have happened to the yeah, dog. I so now the dog, dog treats me as its family member. But like you were the one who took yeah. the dog. Right. No, but but that's exactly it. Like, that's why I'm saying I don't I expect like, yeah, like if I died you know, particularly if we'd had a little more time to, to adjust, like, yeah, I'm sure the dog would like have some actual, you know, doggy pang or whatever, but I just don't think As it's opposed to curiosity, like curiosity. Oh, I wonder, wonder where big food man is. You think uh, it'd be like, Oh, I'm so sad that probably, probably some of both. I mean, I think dogs do have some, some like basic em emotions. I just think that like, they're, they're not, they can't be like, we can be, you know, in a, in a zombie apocalypse, like you don't take, you don't like do a full, uh, what do you call it? Uh, sitting Shiva, right. For your, yeah, for your, that is mom. what I call it. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. The, you people, right. No, like you don't, you don't do that during a zombie apocalypse. Cause it's like, well, it's sad that your mom died, but you've got to fucking keep running. And like, I think a dog is a little more like, like life is dark. Like the world is a dark place. And so, yeah, I'm sad that this person I knew died, but I've got to worry about like breakfast. Uh, and taking a shit on this uh, other dog's <laughs> pile of shit, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think like the, the key for me is that it's because I think it's actually darker than than like cultivating a a small canine slave to love you. I think it, I think it's it's actually that uh, you are able to give the dog constant, continual, never diminishing physical affection in a way that you can't with any human. Like if you touched your wife tenderly and consistently every time you saw her, like she divorced would divorce very quickly. Right? Right. She would be like, you're stalking me. So I think like you and your kids, you do can like, but your kids grow out of it. And so I think with the dog, you can like every single time you see it, you can talk in a baby voice and you can rub it and, and like show physical affection. I think it's a way to like remind oneself that one like trick oneself into feeling like one is in fact a, it's not about the dog's affection or the dog's humanity. It's about like, 
like it's like a, a a prosthetic or a soothing device or like a f- f- fidget spinner for your own sense of humanity. Have I ever sent you um, the advertisements for the baby lifelike monkey dolls? Oh God, are these like the baby werewolves? No. So the, there's this company that, and we'll link to it. I'm sure in the show notes. But there's <laughs> this company. There's this company that makes like super lifelike babies. Dolls. Oh, the re- the reborn dolls. I, I don't know. I I the, I couldn't imagine an appropriate use for these dolls, <laughs> right? But this company makes dolls for people who want their dolls to look like very, very, very recently alive babies, uh, and they make them in all races and genders and and situations. American sniper. And I think as far as I can them. tell. <laughs> The only other product they make is very real life baby monkeys, which they dress in like um, old fashioned nightgowns and like bathing suits. And again, like I, I can imagine like sorted scenarios whereby people would feel comfortable, comforted by a by a doll that looks exactly like a human baby that died five seconds ago. I, this monkey baby thing is the most extraordinary and they're like really expensive, but affordable, you know, they're like $189. And like they, they, and there, there, there's one baby monkey in like a cradle position. There's another baby monkey that will like hold onto your shoulder. You know, if you, if you have it gripping you the right way. Um, and, I guess it's cheaper than a dog. Yeah, I think it's I think it's cheaper than a dog, and I think it's also like it's again it's as with like sexual kinks or or like uh, like adult coloring books. It's like one degree of removal. That's like, but this isn't like buying a rubber baby. It's I'm buying a rubber monkey. That's a little I less see. sad and weird. So it's that's interesting. So it's for the consumer base who wants the rubber baby but doesn't want to be the sort of person who would buy a lifelike rubber baby. Yeah, I, maybe not consciously, but yeah, I think like that's probably the edge. Like that's the like that's where you know you're, it's like you know it's it's like well, this is uh, this is like she looks like a schoolgirl, but she's not actually a schoolgirl. The advertisements you know, are great. It's like with lifelike fingernails. You're like, what? <laughs> Who is focusing on the fingernails of this baby <laughs> no. monkey? You know. Like, uh, eyes don't close, exclamation point. You're like, who? who is that good for? I don't... So oh, anyway, God. these I ads are real close. and they're... <laughs> don't close. <laughs> it's horrifying. These, these ads are real and they'll sp- they're spectacular. I will send you one or two um, good, after, good, after good, we wrap good. up. Good, yeah. Uh, <laughs> speaking of which, we, we, have a, we have a few interesting m- movies and programs and one horrible article to talk about it's a really bad article but before terrible. we get to, before we get to the article i love the idea that now you're releasing um your new episodes like a minute 30 before you and i tape so there's no way i can shit all over mary joe salter like yeah. like okay <laughs> i'm gonna time this so it's impossible for brian even to listen to the first yeah. five minutes of this interview i just want to talk to him before he can digest something he hates about mary joe salter yeah it's, that's a, it's only with uh with with priority guests that i that i'm i outmaneuver your uh your your contempt right alice allen who appears to be 
like the most objectively lovely, delightful, intelligent, like uncomplicated, uncomplicated is probably words you'd be offended by, but like, there's not a lot of ways to set Alice Allen up for me to like take her down a peg. But um, Alice, if you're listening, I think you are a, uh, a complicated woman and forgive me for, for calling you anything other than that. Alice Allen, complicated woman, says recently disgraced. Says dog hate, dog hating podcast guest. She's lovely. She actually strikes me as somebody who would be. Her curse would be that she would love to be in a good natured roast, but people would find it so hard to roast her that she would. And then there's Alice over here. Oh yeah, give it up to to Alice. Looks like she chose a. He's very modest and self deprecating sweater to wear. Looks like she read a poem and has a sensible opinion about it. So do you want to start with your, you had, a, you, you saw Encanto, the magical realism talent movie. You, did you, did you think of, I was, I was surprised you saw it at all because you have boys and I thought there was still a strict division between boy movies and girl movies. I thought this was a girl movie. So my kids have been um, rather successfully raised without most of the gender assumptions that right. you and I had. And I right. raising kids in Brooklyn is insane for all the reasons that we can get into or not. But like my son Owen just got into non-ironically the babysitters club as just like the obvious next book to read. And he's like, oh. can you can you believe that Elsa and uh, Tara or didn't invite Cord- Cordelia? You know, and I'm like, when is he going to realize all of these names are girls? <laughs> You know, it's like they were starting a club and, you know, Elsa's cousin Mariah wanted to be in the club and, and he just doesn't care. So I, I do think that there there is a, is a lack of gender assumption, at yeah. least for the moment in my six and eight year olds, which is um, only wonderful, but also and like um, gossip is universally interesting. Is what exactly. And, and, you know, I, I, of all people, am only interested in gossip, I, you know, literary fiction, I just think is gossip, but more like we're allowed to discuss it as though we're sophisticated. Yeah, oh, like yeah, I, yeah, it's disgusting. the whole purpose of all of it. Um, but it's Bruno. It's, we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno is a, um, why do people like that song? It is a top five billboard hit. Um, and the album that is riding on, we don't talk about Bruno is I think number one in the country or was recently the, the first in, in a long time. People just love, we don't talk about Bruno. So he was hearing all his friends listen to it in school and wanted to know why you're not supposed to talk about Bruno, which actually gets me to a question I was listening to. You referred to Bruno as a Cassandra-like figure. And I know that you are incorrect in saying that, but I don't know what the correct frame of reference is. So Cassandra, as far as I understand her story, and correct me if I'm wrong, is somebody who could tell the future, but her curse was that nobody believed her. And that was... Um, obviously led to a whole bunch of trials and tribulations. Bruno, he can tell the future and everyone just knows that he's going to get it right. And he affects the future. Uh, It doesn't affect it. That's not the right way of saying it. He predicts the future. And because the future is so often negative, he gets blamed for his predictions. Is there a character you're familiar with for whom that is the case? Because there are a lot of like um, Old Testament characters who... um, incorrectly interpret dreams, you know, and, and they're, yeah. you know, uh, accused of having a relationship with God, but that's not exactly the same. There are, there are um, characters such as Cassandra who can see into the future, but nobody believes them. So they are tortured by their inability to affect the future. Right. Bruno just seems to see bad things coming and it's, it's a kid's movie. So it's their jokes. Most of them, you know, like, um, like he told me my fish would die and up. Uh, 
my dead fish or like he told me i would get a gut and up there's my gut like i don't right. or he told the it, sister like it's going to rain on your wedding day and she was like in the arena my wedding day and she like completely neglects the fact that her emotions magically control the weather well also like, what yeah. a terrible why would you want that magic power because you notice there's the sister whose emotions you know they're like all these very typical superhero powers you know yeah. there's like can tell the future is super strong like is super beautiful makes flowers out of everything the the best one is cool is the mom when she cooks um she can cure illness with just any item uh, uh, that comes out of her oven but then you get some some weird ones like there's one sister who can hear everything, but that that skill is like never really used in the movie. And there's another sister who can control the weather, but only um, I guess the animators never figured out like sun or something. Like the only right. time that she uses the emotion is the, this power is to make it rain like above her. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I mean, the, the curse seems to be that she can like her emotions control the weather, but she can't control her emotions. Right. So she but, just, she's just the sort of walking tempest. And it's never discussed that some of these emotions, some of these powers are curses and some of them right. are, are powers. And then a couple of the people with the good powers sing songs about how their powers make them feel stressed out about it. So they are curses in that way. Uh, but Bruno is unique to me, and I'm sure your listeners will let you know what I'm missing. But in the curse being, he can tell the future. And then he is blamed for the future he tells. Right. Like, like his whole family has misinterpreted his talent. Right. Like and everyone he's ever met. Agency right. to him. Right. Yeah. Which seems like easily solvable. Yeah. Like someone could just point out that like, hey guys, like not, not Bruno's fault. Except like maybe it was his fault. He shouldn't have told the girl who can control the weather that on her wedding day, it was going to rain. Like that seemed to have some pretty obvious implications there. If you tell <laughs> the, the lady who controls the rain, that it's going to rain on a day that she doesn't want it to rain when she's in a bad mood, it rains like Bruno. Yeah. That's the one that Bruno is to blame for. Actually, Bruno should have not told anyone. Right. Yeah. That was a very poor choice. He could have seen part. the repercussions of that. Oh, it was on um, the wedding. Like, yeah, you just, you just don't. Yeah. He couldn't think yeah. of anything, anything bland and nice to say on her wedding day. Right. Uh, no, I mean, but the, like the song we don't talk about Bruno is about this Bruno who controls the future as they all believe. And they, and they do, they acknowledge that they don't talk about it. And to me, it partly also just felt like uh, a, 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 he's a character whose existence is a, an occasion for mass denial. Like, yeah. I actually, like I really change or something like I, you, totally. I, I thought there was, there was a thou dost protest too much element to that song, which I found delightful. It's like, <laughs> we don't talk about Bruno and it's like, all they want to do is talk about Bruno. Mm -hmm. So the only way they could talk about Bruno was by yelling at this person who wants to talk about Bruno that we're not allowed to talk about Bruno. What I think it has, because of the other huge hit that it's been compared to is Let It Go. And what both of those songs have in common is that they are amoral or they're even like, Let It Go in any other Disney movie would have been the villain song. Like the, the moral of Let It Go is a bad moral and the moral of, we don't talk about Bruno is a bad moral. And so they're, their lyrics expressing a genuine feeling rather than teaching a lesson. So maybe, like that's maybe part of the appeal. I just don't really, it's not my cup of tea. But one fascinating consequence, or not even consequence, one fascinating cause of that is that Frozen, like Encanto, doesn't have a villain. And that, I think, is a trend that we're seeing in children's movies where if you look at the original disney movies they all have the evil stepmother or the wicked witch or you know somebody who needs to be conquered or overcome whereas if you look at frozen 
there's there are no evil characters really well, there's, there's like the mayor of weasel town actually frozen one has evil characters has the evil has the guy who's going to take it over yeah. frozen two doesn't frozen well, two frozen two's the villains of frozen two are our own bad racist ancestors are like the villain of frozen two is colonialism and the message of frozen two is is like what you need to do is you need to say well i guess we're just going to destroy the entire centuries old city where we live in order to do justice for the indigenous peoples we displaced oops but at the last minute even though we decided to destroy it it will be saved and so we don't have to destroy it and so really all we need to do is a land acknowledgement and then we're fine so i think that the problem with that analysis is uh twofold one okay. uh you're saying our ancestors are to blame is the problem but that's that's the same problem as in kanto they they specifically yeah. don't name the evil force that is pushing them out of their city initially and that's what right. confused my kids may have been the liberal rebels of the thousand days war and i think i think the, the madrigals were actually a wealthy conservative family <laughs> who eventually won the war right i i think that the your um the the, the second flaw the, the second place i'd like to push back in your um very correct attack on frozen 2 is that nothing in the movie makes any sense true, and it's true. our it's, it's <laughs> yeah, your it's true. your bad plan to try to make it make yeah, sense yeah, right yeah. like like frozen the whole the whole frozen um one and two makes me come to the conclusion that they weren't even trying to make it make sense and i think that these these movies have to be judged according to something different a, a different standard um where the logical holes are so gaping you know like you can play the game with frozen i don't remember it as well but like who ruled the frozen town between when the frozen parents were killed and when the frozen daughters grew up right presumably there was like, like a vizier who was ma ma managing the t the town but th we never meet him or her. maybe yeah. also like she she everything she touches turns to ice so she can create a living human snow creature like they yeah. they, they dream of, why doesn't she doesn't make any any other lot anything else come to right. life like there's just no there's no logic to any of the powers to any of the villains to any of the sure, any of yeah. it which i think puts us as parents in a um somewhat complicated situation where we, our, our instinct is to analyze is to say well this is a plot hole or this is something that the writers didn't yeah. fully think through but i don't think that's the case in either frozen or in in kanto i think they just don't care like there's no the goal isn't to create a narrative that makes any any sense the the goal is to create uh show-stopping songs yeah. and characters that are memorable well, but, the, but I think like the, that's why like the proper parental response is is the mirror of the writer's response, which is not to care. Like I saw Frozen 2 because I took my daughters to see it at the theater and I saw it in Kanto because my daughter specifically asked me to watch it. I don't watch fucking kids movies. I don't watch like that's the thing that blew me my mind about this terrible slate essay all about like, hey, we when my wife and I watch kids TV, we have all these theories. And I guess really what it's like when you watch Doc McStuffins for the sixth time, if you're like, why the fuck are you watching it? Why are you not doing dishes? Why are you not doing like? Your kids are watching it. Why are you sitting with your kids six times in a row to watch Doc McStuffins? How? how why? So Philip Masiak, um, I'm butchering the last name and I apologize, wrote this essay you're referring to in Slate, uh, January 13th, Brain 2022. Dead. Brain dead 
at uh, 11.31 a.m. it was published. And what you're, what you're referring to is his general argument here. It's a form of play. While it might seem like I'm positioning watching these shows as an act of unbearable drudgery, it can be undeniably fun too, he says. And then he explains something in the paragraph that seems uh, not fun at all. He says, facing down the sixth rewatch of the same episode of Doc McStuffins, we choose to tune in rather than tune out. Instead of doom scrolling or glazing over, we wonder how the McStuffinsville Toy Hospital is administered. What about laundry? What about like exactly. making the bed? What about like, don't you have chores? So inherent, I think, in that argument is the sense that if our kids are going to be watching TV, we should be watching TV with our kids in order to have, in order to be present as parents, you know, in, in order to to better uh, take, you know, benefit the kid by our proximity and the viewing experience where then we can discuss not only the, the morals, but we can like begin an analytical vocabulary, which will then lead to, you know, young adult literature and then the, the poems and books that you and I have dedicated our lives to. Yeah, I think that's true. I just can't stand it. I can't. Oh, it's it. the worst. It's, it's the worst. And I also don't think it's true. <laughs> I, I, I think that the, the beauty of, I don't know if you, if your girls went through a, um, a Dan, Daniel Tiger phase. Did you do yeah, that yeah, at all yeah, in your little, house? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really lovely, Daniel Tiger. And the reason why it's really lovely is it's really simple and really kind. And it's for children who are distracted by the animal human friends. And the same little like ditty is repeated six or seven times over the course of the episode. You know, like, you got to try new things because you just might like it. And what's lovely about that is that like, that's true. You know, yeah. like you should try new things because you might like it. And as a two-year-old, what a wonderful message as you're like beginning to learn language and food tastes weird, you know, and, and you don't need to discuss that with your parents or siblings. Like, it's just a little song that's in your head and like, you should try new things. And when you get disappointed, you should take a deep breath. You know, that's like another Daniel Tiger song or, um, if I like the one make, when you're when you were waiting and you're bored, you should like use your imagination to entertain yourself. That's right. It's, I, it's it, much put put more concisely than that, but right. It's it's like um like if the lasagna hasn't arrived, play a game where you count everything on the table. Like you it's, were fired from the Daniel Tiger writing room. <laughs> well, I, I yeah, I made the final cuts. They said I didn't want to. I don't if. <laughs> If, <laughs> if your house catches on fire, call a policeman. Nope, not a policeman. Call a <laughs> firefighter. You know, like I, I always, I made those little mistakes in the middle. Right. All cops are bastards. Never call the police. <laughs> that was one of your hits. <laughs> so the idea of watching television with your kids, I understand the instinct to analyze that TV, I understand. My own foray into the genre, I do have to admit, is the most read thing I've ever written, which is a takedown of Paw Patrol. Um, I read it now and cr cringe. I, I wrote it then um, and believed every syllable of it. But my point about Paw Patrol wasn't that it existed in a universe where like financially, you know, the GDP couldn't cover the cost of having such a large police force, you know, of kids. My, my um, problem with Paw Patrol 
is it was unbearable to be in the same house with right like it was super loud and super bright and the only girl dog is like cutesy and uh like uh focused on remembering things and wears pink and all the boy dogs were like out of control wild like i i my problem with paw patrol and like the 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 mayor is like a black woman who needs to be taken her order marching orders by like a little white boy like it's all like it's it's all this stuff that like i think is all fucked up like kids shouldn't kids shouldn't be watching that like that's that's like loud and annoying and violent and um, like misogynistic. And I, like, I don't like that's, it's right. just if bad. It's going to be dumb and annoying. It might as well have a, a decent lesson it teaches rather than teaching actively bad lessons. Right. I- exactly. So I, I, I admit that I am guilty of, of overthinking this, but I, I overthink it as a human being who needs to be in the same uh, vicinity of it more than somebody trying to look for the benefits of spending all your time watching shows made for three to five-year-olds. Oh God. I mean, here's, here's the most uh, uh, demented sentence in this, in this essay. Uh, Bluey is, is one of these kid shows he, he talks about. He says, I'm not going to watch Bluey by myself. But if they want to make a show for grown-ups about how Bandit and Chili manage to remain such good parents without squabbling too much, I think I'd tune in. Are you fucking insane? You I couldn't tell. That's a joke, right? That's a, is that a joke? I mean, the whole essay had this tone where I couldn't tell so if it was much. joking or not. I Yeah, it's. I think it's joking. I think it's the like, uh, it's it's the... Uh, the the person who has the Harry Potter you know Hufflepuff tattoo as a thirty five year old right but like smirks about it and like writes a self deprecating tweet about having it but still publicizes it I mean I think this is like this person watches these shows not just once but over and over again and thinks about them and like tunes in online to see what other people think about them I I think it's so the tattoo question makes me um want to delve into a slightly more dangerous area of this conversation which is which is adult Disney fetishists now I are you familiar with any of these do you have any of these either in your immediate or tangential life uh yeah a guy I collaborated with some here turns out to be a, a really hardcore Disney fan I think he He's in comedy and gets made fun of a lot. And so I'm sure he doesn't mind, but it blows my mind. I don't understand it. So there are adults who spend their adult money on adult vacations going with their adult friends, lovers, or alone to Disney World and Disneyland. And they watch all of these movies when they're out in the theaters. They go to all the musicals. They listen to this music as their as their music of choice. And I think it's it's worth um spending a, a, a moment on the the best defense of this attitude towards disney is it allows in childhood a sort of freedom of imagination and experimentation that feels healthy for people who are otherwise trapped within a life that they don't know how to discuss so you'll see a uh, prevalence among gay men in that world of disney um attachment uh and and i think that there's i have a, a gay friend who's explained it as it was through disney princesses and disney songs that 
he could allow a part of his personality, which was otherwise um, had to be hidden, you know, uh, he could allow that part to come out through some of the songs and through some of the characters. So there still is a, a comfort and a particular type of joy that, that is evoked by that, um, that, but, but by that, by that world. And, that's, and that's, I, a, like, that's nostalgia for him. Like, that's like, as a kid, this meant a lot to me. And now as an adult, I'm have, I have fond feelings for it. That's along the lines of what I asked. And, and he got offended. He, he said, no, that's, that's not nostalgia. It's just a portal into a type of pleasure that I have emotional access to. And that you, you know, bad guy, Brian, don't. And I, I think I, that just took me aback um, because there, it, I hadn't thought of that before. The idea that, that there's a, a legitimate, I use the word fetish too often, and I know it means different things, but there's a, from what I understand, a lot of sexual fetishes come from like first sexual experiences or what is denied um, sexually at youth or right. sort of what one's fantasy as an 11 through 15 year old is, you know, and then you can right. manifest that later on. So I, I do wonder in these formative times in someone's life, if I, I know that I, I talked about gay people earlier now you talking about sexuality but I, i'm not necessarily in, um intending that overlap but I, I wonder if there's an emotional outlet that disney enables that then sticks with people through adulthood um because i i know people with all sorts of disney tattoos who right. are otherwise um you know, like successful professional and family, familial, gay and straight people. Mm. I, I know um, lonely people who uh, spend their vacations with friends or alone going to Disney World. And and again, no one is forcing them to do that. It, they right. they oh, yeah, experience no, real, real pleasure there, right? And it's not yeah. like the rides are better right like i again i'm not i'm not a big i have got this neurological disorder so i, I can't do exciting rides and roller coasters and stuff but it's, it's not like you go to disney world for the most intense experience there no, so no, there no. there must be like a comforting aspect to all of this and and for a while i was and i still am a little bit confused as to the the pixar excitement people talk about the new pixar movie that that's out and i've i have a few former students now friends with whom i'm pretty close who were um who are really uh top of the world uh programmers you know coders who yeah, yeah. have worked for pixar and they they went undergrad and grad and got these really advanced degrees and they they want to work for pixar because of how much they love pixar and i I've tried to push them on it a little bit and they, they really feel emotions, you know, like in the, in that first, yeah. I don't know whether you've seen up, but I have, I've had many yes, adults yeah, tell yeah. me that in the beginning of up, they cried at the, at the going through the life of the old man's uh, yeah, 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 relationship yeah, yeah. Yeah. to oh, the sure. woman yeah. and how she dies. And I don't really understand it. I don't like, I don't, yeah. I understand how cartoons can be moving. I don't understand how, sophisticated people are triggered in that way by five minutes of a cartoon, but they are. So I don't, sure. I don't know whether that's the same thing as the Disney world. I don't know whether that's the same thing as we don't talk about Bruno being um, appealing. I mean, I, I think the song is catchy and has a sort of 
hip hop um, meets Latin America. I mean, it's, it's like, like, like hip hop lights, the Lin Manuel Miranda. Exactly. It's yeah, Lin Manuel Miranda. It's, it's, it's Hamilton. Right, yeah. It's, it's, it's in the Heights. It's, it's sort of accessible pop, hip hop, right. musical. And he is a genius at that type of art. Yeah. You know, he, he is able to make accessible hip hop for the masses. Right. Um, in a way that children and adults really love and i i don't think there's anything wrong with that but no, i'm no. wondering jo- joanna's comparison was that was that lin-manuel miranda is to hip-hop what friday night lights is to football like like if, even if somebody who couldn't stand to sit through a football game will like think that he likes football for the duration of a friday night lights episode and i think i think lin-manuel, lin-manuel miranda may have a similar effect right he'd like it's like a reader's digest right but that's that's not perfect because the Lin-Manuel Miranda songs are hip-hop and the pleasure you get from them is the sort of exciting pleasure of um, wordplay and a driving beat and all of that that hip-hop gives whereas the pleasure that you get from Friday Night Lights is a soap opera pleasure it's not a football pleasure well no but like there are there are there are pieces there's basically like a fictional highlights reel in like yeah that's true inserted into it i think like maybe the the true comparison would be like last chance you right uh, where where it's like it is real football but it's sort of it's compressed and you just look at the fun parts and i mean because because i mean literally miranda writes hip-hop but it's like hip-hop with a that's like heavily watered down with the show tunes um, right. I, I actually think a more generous or watered way to up, Man- know, like, exactly. Yeah. I think the more yeah. generous way to, to read Lin Manuel's work and his success is he has taken show tunes a step in a direction towards a contemporary popular art. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you no, know, yeah. that like he I think Lin Manuel Miranda writes really good show tunes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the problem right. with, you know, you've mentioned um Champagne Sharks podcast uh once yeah. or twice in Slee Ricketts previous episodes, and his uh take on Hamilton is uh, spectacular, really one of the best works of cultural criticism I've seen, read, or heard in in years. I think the one place that it falters is in saying that, and it's not even good hip-hop. You know, that's a a mistake. I I think that if you're looking for good hip hop, you should go listen to hip hop. If you're looking for (laughs) a a a musical that you might be able to tolerate or even enjoy aspects of, and you are under the age of 70, I think um, Lin-Manuel Miranda does a pretty good job at that. Right. Well, and this is, this is where I think like the, I don't want to watch Disney cartoons if I'm not required to by, by virtue of my love for my children. But I think that the, like an attachment to, or an emotional uh, involvement in Disney cartoons is, you know, exists like on a spectrum with, but also not like not even that far along a spectrum with an attachment to or an involvement in Hamilton or Game of Thrones. I think like these are all basically the same sort of mostly moralizing, mostly simplistic, sort of cartoonish, heavily sentimentalized, uh, you know, cartoon narratives for adults, young adults, children, and babies. So let me follow that through. So then the word prestige just becomes a euphemism for brutality. Or something like that. Where like the difference between 
in, um, in, in Kanto and like Game naked, of nakedness, nudity and right. violence, mostly. Right, yeah. is and, and rape and bad, you know, and bad, bad language. Yeah. But if you, it's it's interesting. I I watched um, Game of Thrones while it was on for the most part, and I I enjoyed it. I I didn't understand why there was so much torture, uh, but, <laughs> but other than that. Other than like, it could have been like, I don't, I, I know that's not an original take, but I, I, I just didn't, I didn't get, I don't, didn't get what point that served. And, and now, and then towards the end, I, like everybody else was infuriated by the fact that like, really you're built by the spoilers for game of Thrones <laughs> cut through the next whatever seconds. But like, I didn't get why you would spend so many dozens of hours building up this undefeatable army of the dead only to very easily defeat them without any like change of course or consequence just like a regular army with like a girl just like defeated them and like why were there those men without faces who could fight and defeat everybody and then they disappeared and like all of that stuff was annoying that seems clear it's because the source material got ahead of the writer and that's not worth rehashing what i do want to spend a moment rehashing though is i've been re-watching you know in the pandemic as a lot of people have some shows i i feel like the wire does a, a wonderful job of, of standing up. I think James Gandolfini's performance in The Sopranos is, is a is a masterpiece. That show has some is dated in, in some ways. Game of Thrones is really uh, rapey. It's it's <laughs> full of violence. Unnecessarily, I'm not, I'm not like, laughing at the at the existence of rape. I'm just, you know. It's that's what stands out to me because like when when you're watching it and you're waiting to be. Um, surprised like i when I, in the beginning of the first season when edward stark was killed i thought that was really cool i didn't expect that more spoilers in the you know then you get to the red wedding scene and then like everybody's killed and like that's also really cool like i didn't expect that to happen for a while if you remember all of prestige tv was like that like the first episode in all shows there would be a big twist at the end like the first episode of mad men you found out that he was actually married after he's been carousing, you know, throughout everything. Right, yeah, yeah. You, you'd see almost every television show in this sort of aughts prestige TV time, yeah. you were waiting to get to the end of the first or second episode and there'd be a big twist. And then the penultimate episode in each season, again, would have another big twist. It seems like we're moving away from that now. If you look at Station Eleven and other like shows that unfold in a in a certain way, I'm not fully finished with Station Eleven yet, so I, I could yeah. be I could be wrong. But in going back to Game of Thrones, if you are not watching it to see what it all will amount to at the end, because you know that the showrunners just like couldn't figure it out, and you're not watching it to be amazed, um, then really you're left with a whole lot of women forced to have sex with people that they don't want to have sex with, and it, yeah. it's complicated in that like that's what because at the time it was i remember there's a saturday night live um epic like a, a scene a, what's it called a saturday night live sketch sketch where the joke was that um game of thrones was written by two different people like this like dorky writer who was following about the dragons and a 12 year old boy who just wanted to jerk off you know right, so like okay. it would be like okay cut and then like the 12 year old boy would come in there'd be a naked scene but that joke that that was sort of funny initially um i don't think that applies i think on second watch it's it's not porn it's it's rape um and that is why just going back to your initial point um, if what you're talking about is just wish fulfillment, if the difference between a Disney, um, if, if the similarity between the Disney movie and Friday Night Lights and Game of Thrones is th they all have that same element of wish fulfillment. They want the, they leave the 
and morality, I think you said, is which is completely accurate. Does the reason we as a culture allow prestige upon Game of Thrones and not upon Disney is that Game of Thrones is just full of darkness and anger and sex, or am I missing some element of your argument? Well, I think prestige is really telling, right? Because it's not quality. It's not it's not complexity. It's, I mean, that, that, that is there in some so, so-called prestige TV, but it's, it's prestige. It, it, it is, it is more highly regarded. It's more highly regarded partly because it has a bigger budget. It's uh, it, it appeals to people uh, for whose opinion we have more respect. It's um, including like the people writing the reviews, right? Like it's what, like the people writing the reviews would rather watch that than watch a good kids movie or, or, or even like a dumb, cable, you know, show like, all right. So to, to, uh, to descend back to the level of children's literature for a second, uh, we, we talked already about the, the anti-Semitic goblin depictions in Harry Potter. I wanted to praise briefly JK Rowling for a really weird choice that she's we're, we're, I'm reading it with my daughters. I've, I've like been in the room while the movies played. I haven't really watched them, but I've been reading the books with my daughter and we're in the middle of the fifth one. And there's this emerging theme of, of where like, Oops, the magical world, in addition to all of their, their whimsical houses and their faux church Latin spells, and like they also have slavery. And uh, there's this whole like under race of like sentient, fully conscious beings called house elves who are just unequivocally slaves. And they are dressed in rags and they are treated as distinctly subhuman. And, and uh, Hermione, in a, like, in a way that is written as annoying and sort of self-indulgent is really into freeing the slaves totally <laughs> and it's just completely dismissive of her and they kind of but like not even in a like we're evil and closed-minded more like oh god hermione it's so annoying and she's written as annoying and like the the hero the main characters mostly sort of roll their eyes at her and and i think i don't know where she goes with this and maybe she goes to some other weird place with it but I actually think that's a brilliant choice because it's so much closer to how, like we, anytime you read about the Holocaust or slavery or this or that in, in like with your, as a kid in history class, the, the whole time you have this weird assumption like, well, I would of course be an abolitionist and I would of course be hiding Jews in my basement. Like, no, like probably you would be like barely aware of what was going on and rolling your eyes at the girl who was like, hey, let's free the cow sl- No, that, that I, feel like, I, I felt like completely, completely agree. And like, if you, uh, it was, I, it was the abolitionists I was thinking about where if you go back to William Lloyd Garrison, is that his, his name? That's um, a name that I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I remember reading him um, um, as a, as a kid. And I remember thinking like, this is obviously so true and it must have been so annoying to everybody else at the time. Yep. And that is what um, he, that, that, that's what um, J.K. Rowling, I think, does a brilliant job of, where everything she's saying is unquestionably true. And also, it's just like vaguely annoying to characters who are otherwise heroes. What I wonder about is the distinction between, because the, kids of a similar age, kids of your daughter's age, you're reading them these rather sophisticated world building books and they are watching. They're not that sophisticated, but yeah. But she has thought through the implications of these worlds. Things don't happen for no reason often. I mean, there are, there, there, there are twists that are dopey, but she at least has 
created a world that she's thought through. And that is not the case for Frozen or for Encanto. I am wondering to what degree you think these movies purposefully are illogical and don't care. I, I wanted to raise this in conjunction with a work that both you and I have read um, a long time ago, which is uh, Italo Calvino's Essays on a New um, Millennium. They, Calvino has this um, anecdote in brevity, his second book of that, where he, he's all about this feathered ogre uh, story, and and uh, Calvino um, translated the feathered ogre into um, a whole bunch of ang- languages. He sees this, he loves this story, just outside of this one book. Um, memos on the what was sorry, what's the book? What's the Calvino title? Uh, six memos to the next millennium. Six memos to the new the, the, the next, next millennium, millennium I think, two. Yeah. I, I lost the preposition there. Um, but be, even beyond the memos, he loves this feathered ogre story. But I remember in brevity, and I found it uh, because it reminds me a lot of this conversation. It's he writes, not a word is said. So it's a story about an ogre and a hero who needs to go steal feathers from an ogre in order to cure a king who is suffering from an illness. And I remember there's this line in the Calvino, not a word is said about what illness the king was suffering from, or why on earth an ogre should have feathers, or what those caves were like, or why an ogre has feathers that cures the illness the king was suffering from. Everything mentioned has a necessary function to the plot and nothing more. And I am wondering whether what you and I were sort of sarcastically laughing at in terms of Frozen not making any sense and our questions about Encanto and like, so the house, so the the main character in Encanto doesn't have any magical powers, but like she sort of can interact with the house, which seems like a magical power because the house isn't reacting that subtly with anybody else. And like, right. Like, like the, just like like the plot- house reads as like a retinal scanner that recognizes right. her as a legitimate, so, you know, whatever. So like there, there are all these things that make no real sense in that movie. My question is, are these movies flawed because they make no sense or are they consciously following a sort of Calvino? Let's just stick with the details that we need to make children care about these show-stopping numbers and these characters. Or what I think might be the case: Do they subconsciously realize that all they need is to create these show-stopping numbers and these characters that people care about, and they sort of tell themselves it makes enough sense and don't really want to deal with it otherwise? I mean, pr- probably a little bit of all of the above, because I also think they vary from from you know. Example to example, but I think like I don't mind fairy tale logic. I don't mind ignoring the particulars of like who was ruling when and and why does the king need an ogre feather. I think what irritates me is when there is a heavy moral implication, when there is a sort of a, a a lesson or a moral being delivered by the movie, and also that is itself morally incoherent. Like, like that's, that's fair, but you are the one saying these movies are moral because that I'm not, what, what could the moral of frozen possibly be that uh, if you hug your sister, everything gets better or like, oh, I mean, what? like frozen, no, I mean the, the moral of frozen, the first movie is bros before hoes, but before right. Feminine it, words, like, like right. sisters before mistress, lovers. Yeah. Right. And then the, the moral mm-hmm. of the second movie is we, we shouldn't have. It's like you should do a land acknowledgement because your your ancestors were colonialists. Like that's but basically why. What it is. But why did the king trick those 
people. Right. And why did like the, the warriors on sense. both sides who were trapped in the forest for 35 years, why did they never like say, hey, I noticed we're all trapped in this forest. Maybe we should stop continuing to fight this war we've been fighting for 35 years. Yeah, no, I mean, like there are plenty of, I, I guess it just like it, 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 if it were just a magical salamander and some stone ogres and uh, 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 Elsa having a midlife crisis and realizing she's really a god, like fine, whatever. But I think it's that it is, it's it's that it it if it if it either like I guess if it either recognized its irrelevance to to like our you know social political world and just went with that, that's fine. Um, or if it decided to really be true to sort of a psychological emotional reality, which the first movie felt like it was at least closer to that. It feels a little more like, well, this does get at something about what it's like to fall in love and what it's like to have a close relationship with a sister that you sometimes fight with, but then you really love more than anyone else. If, you know, those are to me like fairy tale, good fairy tales are magical and absurd and bizarre, but they, they ring true on some deep emotional psychological level. So um, then the moral of, because I just want to check you to make sure that you're not reading morals into where they're not existing and then accusing something of being moralizing. And I don't think, I think you're right. Yeah. I think morals do exist there, but then talk me through Encanto. What is the moral of Encanto? Oh, I mean, Encanto. Uh, was, it's that you shouldn't put pressure on family members. Oh so, yeah. No, I mean, Encanto, Encanto. Uh, Cause that makes the grandmother who is the hero, the villain, and she just apologizes right. at the end, but it's clear that she's not the yeah, villain. No, she's Encanto had, right. But that's the thing is like Encanto's whole plot was ba relied on the deus ex machina, which is the house itself, which also is attached to all of your magic has a Richter scale for how much familial strife there is. And it's unclear what, resolves this familial strife but we do understand that when the house is alive again then the family is at peace and so we like the house the magic stops starts to not work because the family's having trouble or the family actually starts having trouble because the magic isn't working and then the magic works again and the family's okay again so like yeah, but then why no can't i defend Encanto as exactly what you were saying which is not moral it's just a, something right, that so, rings so that i would slightly say, yes, true absolutely. about family that like when everybody uh, feels <laughs> When everybody feels, you know, pressured to perform certain roles, things begin to crumble. Um, and then once you hug and you say, you know what, I, I love you for who you are, that's when life gets easy again. I, I don't think, is, I don't think see, I, I, that's not at all my experience of family, but, but I don't, yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't mind if it were just a silly movie that had a deus ex machina and some snappy numbers, that's fine. I think like part of what like irritated me a little bit is that it, it felt like the treatment of talent like like hamilton the moral of hamilton is not that uh is uh success is is a meritocracy and you should pull yourself up by your bootstraps but that is an assumption that goes into the world of hamilton and that's like it, it wasn't so much like the overt moral of encanto it was the assumptions that it made about talent and even things like you know oh it was a magical candle that allowed this family to have enormous wealth and establish this like homestead and become the aristocratic rulers of this village. Whereas like, no, I think actually you, you fled your town with your family wealth while the like communist rebels were chasing you. And one of them macheted your husband to death. You know what the weirdest part about that was? It was, I, I agree entirely. And what struck me as the most troubling um, consequence of that is after the house crumbles, None of them have magic to put the house together. Yeah. So they go and get all of the poor villagers 
to build, to rebuild their house for them. And that when the house is rebuilt, they just, the six of them live in this beautiful house that the entire right. village built. And the villagers had to go back to their, they go like, back to their lives they of go back to their little, little their mud huts. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's actually slightly worse than that because they don't even get the villagers to do it. The villagers recognize their duty and they say, we're so grateful to you. Everything that you've done so all this time, living with your magic right. powers in your magic house, we will come and labor for you for free. Like the way, the way like, uh, uh, characters in Shakespeare plays talk about the innate qualities of nobility and gentility. That is how the characters in Encanto talk about the Madrigal family's talent. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, like a bizarre, there's like, that's not the moral, but like there are these bonkers class, you know, assumptions going on in the movie. And like, just, I mean, to me, like nothing about the movie rang especially true except for Bruno being a nervous wreck. Uh, and Mirabelle maybe being like slightly more well-adjusted because she's, She's not obsessed with talent. Like that that's the like otherwise it didn't really ring all that true. It just felt like it was a it was a nice spectacle that had some weird class assumptions that felt very consistent with the those in uh Lynn Manuel Miranda's other works. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful to look at. They're really they're really getting good at putting colors. They're great at animation. Yeah, and the flowers really, are amazing. Just great flowers. Extraordinary. And I mean, and it makes one of their one of the sister's uh powers is that she can make flowers which like isn't that great of a flower uh, a power but you see these flowers and you're like oh i get i get why that's a good super yeah, power there, there does seem to be an appreciation in the town for like Beautiful. oh it's nice to have her around like we, yeah, we, yeah. You know, we're, we're like glad that we get to have wonderful flowers everywhere and we value that so that's a nice thing yeah and i would say like if you're an adult and you have a small kid then like no still don't go see this movie like go do the fucking dishes while your kids watch it and maybe you'll see something in the background and that'll be fine you don't, yeah, there's nothing, nothing, I mean, you know, because the, th the thing that the guy says, which is like, we can entertain ourselves by, by, by like the, this moronic, I'm sorry if this is like a, a nobody, and this is his very first publication and, and he really is hoping he's made it with this because the piece of uh, idiocy that he managed to publish in Slate, good for, I hope they paid him well. But the, the thing he says, which is- like, Yes, I'm sure Slate paid <laughs> this ringer without much experience very well. Yeah, he's going to be yeah. dining off that article for months. Right, Slate, which is like, really is like the adult coloring book of like online periodicals. He, he says like, we, you know, we can use these slightly sophisticated children's TV shows to- to like ask logical questions that you sort of go beyond the the sophistication of the show itself but like that's exactly the same thing you do with most adult tv as well which also is like oh the doctor just violated hipaa to tell the family what's going on with the patient and like i guess the i guess she it's good thing he survived that stab wound because she just left in there and i guess there's no like trial for murder in the post-apocalyptic future Right. It's not, it's not an added value in kid shows, you're saying, that you get to no. read between the lines and think through the repercussions of actions. Right. It's like, like have you ever seen inherent any in all art and life. Like right. you can say like, oh, it's weird that David's talking to Sydney like that. I wonder what's going on there. Like, that's just like curiosity. Like it's yeah. not. Oh yeah. Yeah. And there's, and there's no, like, there's no um more, like, I don't know that good kid shows are, are like, much worse necessarily at their cons inconsistencies or their, their illogical assumptions than, or like weird class politics than like most adult programming is. It's just that, uh, 
uh, maybe we just we'd like talk about it weirdly in this different way or we say like you should really see this like let you know, me like, just if put your in child a plug. loves you and wants you to see it and you will make her happy by seeing it then see it but otherwise let don't me, let me just put in a plug for rugrats which was a <laughs> cartoon of my childhood which is the only show my kids have watched regularly you know they watched all ten thousand episodes um and it, it's delightful. It's charming. It's caring. It's, it's sincerely funny and not funny in a way that um, all children's TV, as this essayist did point out, I think correctly, that or whether it was due to um, Sesame Street or coincided with Sesame Street, kids, art for kids started to emerge on this sort of dual track where it wanted to entertain kids and entertain parents, but for the most part with different jokes. And I think that that's one of the big disasters of the Shrek movie franchise, where it was like a relatively simple um, fairy tale full of a lot of like mean and sarcastic references <laughs> for parents to get. And like, I never really understood who, who that was for. Um, but Rugrats is really funny. It's like the the it's it's just like this like these old Jewish grandparents are always whining about and people are like stop telling us about the latkes and the grandmother's like I want to tell you about the latkes and it's funny. It's funny that they're arguing about that and it's funny for kids in the same way it's funny for grown-ups. It's funny that the way they design the diaper is so it always looks like it's about to fall off Tommy and his friends in a way that like diapers in real life look like, but never in cartoons. So my one pitch is if you've got a child between the age of four and 11, and you are looking for a new show, a new series, um, I think that Rugrats is the best um, available streaming on Netflix. In another version of this show where all we did was talk about kids programming, which which I, I don't think either of us has the appetite for, uh, it would it, I would do an episode on kids YouTube, which just I've seen a little bit of it because the kids got really into it over pandemic. Yeah, tell it me is, I haven't I haven't it is gone down like that road. Yeah, brutal, uninflected uh, Darwinism. I mean, just like this bizarre struggle for existence across like Canadian adult women who play with dolls and like charming, largely Russian families with like children who every toy known to man bought for them. Well, I saw, I, I have, I have playdates back when that was a thing um, before, before COVID. I did see some of this. I saw a, a program that seemed to consist solely of a very wealthy child unwrapping yep. new presents every week. Um, yeah. Kids seem to like watching, there's watching a, that. There's a lot of that. A lot of like, very simultaneously like low production value but like high budget uh uh shows produced by like families who turn themselves into stars and including their like barely verbal children uh as well as then like one of the reasons like i don't mind dumb you know classist moralizing disney cartoons is that like the other thing they would like daughters would love to watch is a crazy hospital which is the most evil animation I've ever seen in my life. Is it for it's, children? It's, I mean, it can't be for adults, but like it's for, <laughs> it's for like four-year-old psychopaths. I don't know. I mean, like you can't like, let me put it this way. YouTube kids blocks it, but it's just like this horrible low grade. It's like low grade animation that also has like a, a hideous degree of uh, detail. And it's like people with, simultaneously like repulsive and like basically sort of normal health or cosmetic problems being magically fixed by like a cackling evil 
a, a plastic surgeon while oh, you know what like, this reminds oh, now me your, your big ugly nose is small and pretty now your yeah. ugly back hair is is clear I, and th th these come from other countries right typically and they're I dubbed think, I mean, I, yeah because yeah. i was I, the, m one of my son's friends um clearly started playing a video game six months ago or so and invited my son to play my son doesn't have his own device um so he kept on inviting me to play and the game as far as i understood it is there's some sort of uh a pregnant woman who's had a botched like operation oh, and it was like it was like now you clean up the pregnant woman and it's like do you want to spend five dollars to wash the blood off her feet or ten dollars to reapply makeup to make her face pretty again i'm like whoa this is yeah. crazy i'm sure and it's like, the I, same yeah I, I called the i called the parents of this kid saying like i don't know what your kid's playing with the parents were like oh yeah that's his favorite game yeah. and i said like i guess you gotta find a way to do the dishes I right guess. like you you experienced in like one phone call the like five months of elizabeth kubler ross acceptance that like i went exactly. through with my daughters until it's like no, 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 this one is like, I want crazy hospital on the black screen, meaning, <laughs> meaning adult YouTube instead of kids YouTube, because she knows where it, you know, <laughs> of course it's like, there's crazy hospital, which is this horrible, oh. like demented, sadistic, uh, cheap animation. And then like one, one like screen down from that, like one unit down from that on the YouTube scroll is like alarming raw footage of like an insane asylum. And it's like, I'm not sure which would be worse really for her ultimately to, to be viewing. But yeah, that that's kids YouTube is both more awful and in some ways purer than than all this other entertainment partly because right. it's, it's like, the game of thrones sure. of children and entertainment yeah it's a game of thrones with no monarchs right it's just <laughs> just like it's all boy it's all boy kings right <laughs> yeah so that that's uh that that's that's my my take on kids entertainment uh now and and possibly forever just very quickly because i know you're you're the only other chess nerd person i i, I talk to regularly uh it's really terrible i i'm actually i i for the first time set a um, maximum number of minutes on my chess.com app on my phone <laughs> because it doesn't make me happy it makes me sad i don't it's like it, it it has the gambling highs and lows of like degenerate addictive gamblers without any payoff and like it just makes me look at my phone all day in the way that I am proud not to do because I don't have a job where I need to look at my phone all day. Like it's it's really awful. Where I have trouble stop, I, I, I have trouble stopping after I win, and I have trouble stopping after I lose. Right. And explain to me how this works. I was in like the nine hundreds for a while, right? And I won or lost half my games or so. Um, and I, I could do it. I could win. I could lose. And then one of my kids took over the account and lost like yeah. 15 games in a row and put me in the low 700s. Yeah. And I didn't get any better at winning or losing. I've stayed in the low 700s since then, which has made me go to bed like an angry. <laughs> I, sometimes I'm lying in bed angry. Think, And I, I really, this happened to me the other night thinking like, what is bad in my life? And I was going through everything. I'm like, I don't have a manuscript that was just rejected. My wife still loves me. I haven't been fighting. No one I know is sick. Why am I so... It's chess.com. It's because I've just spent the last 45 minutes on chess.com. I hate it. I hate playing it. I hate myself when I when I win. I hate myself when I lose. I'm, I'm, I'm not getting any better somehow. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there there's... 
like the number of people playing it is so insane and it takes so long like assuming that this like faux faux fide faux elo rating system is even remotely accurate in some sense which it seems like it should be sort of accurate eventually like the idea i think is that it, it becomes more accurate over time but that's less true when there's like millions of new players washing into the system every week and so like what anybody's actual ability level is has so little to do with what the number displays at that moment that like you have no idea when you play another 700 whether that's a, a brand new 700 or a very old one so i, I think it, it's just once you get it's sort of like a a, a a riptide like once you get pulled back a little bit it's really hard to make progress again right and as you've said previously is almost entirely determined by my ability to focus for the oh god yeah seven minutes get, that the like, game get takes sleep the night before to, right yeah. to not be distracted in that moment because there are mistakes that people who are doing this as much as you and I are doing this should never make that I make within the first ten moves of every game I play yeah. and and if I start to play well then I just still lose but it's on time. <laughs> right. Well, I, I just made the decision I will never lose again on time. So I lose uh, all right. the time because I just can't. I just rush everything. So I, I do I do a lot of both, but like I definitely I play five minute games. Is that what you play? I play, most, I you... play mostly five minute. I when I'm more patient, I play ten minute and I play much better usually ten minutes. Right. But no, like I will I will flag out up like five, six, ten often. Uh and which probably tells me like I should just be playing longer games. Uh, but then I also like, then when I think I've become sophisticated, like I'm just a slow chess player, then I hang my queen again. And right, so, of course. Like, yeah. And if you play multiple 10 minute games, that means you like sit there for an hour playing right. video games. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it is no different than video games. No, it's like, video I games. I felt superior to people who played video games my whole life because Me I was too. never video games. Me too. All the assholes the playing Candy thing. Crush and Wild Birds and Kill the Cats and whatever these things are. It's just, the, it's just a video game. It's the same thing, but for some reason people... Uh, have slightly more respect for it from a distance though inside of it it's still the same 14 year olds on the other side of the world taunting well, you with emojis what do you they, make they of the people you if you were playing what do you make of the people who taunt you while you play and do you feel the need to have a comeback that taunts them back i i'm infuriated every time and i feel like a strong desire to respond and then i try to remember that it's almost certainly a child who is at least as good at me at chess if not much much better who's like 30 years younger than i am so I, like that's do you think it's intentional do you think it's people trying to make their opposing player angry and get off their game and focus or do you think it's just literally children who think it's fun to be able to insult people i think it's some of both because i am made uh, it works for those of you out there if you want to have a better chance of beating me at chess send me like you're a loser and then yeah. an emoji or right. or, or like, a, like a crying laughing emoji or like a snooze emoji or yeah right right no i i am uh i i become irate and i'm a worse chess player and i i sit there telling myself like you have a full life you have people <laughs> who love you you have a job and a family don't let this snooze emoji get you angry. And I'm sitting there with like my blood pressure pounding. It's, can I'm not you, in control you, of myself. Can you listen to things in earphones in a normal way? Like, does that fuck up your, your neurological thing? Like I listen. can 
I'm not good with earbuds, but like I'm wearing now these over right, the those ear. Those over ears right, are sorry. okay. Are okay. Can, yeah. I, can I tell you my incredibly sad, uh, I live in the matrix and I'm a bug person uh, tip for, Please. for this? Please. Um, I put on a soothing, reassuring ASMR video while I play chess. And it just plays <laughs> in a different screen. <laughs> like some, like while 14 year olds are taunting me with like muscle emojis. A 19-year-old is rubbing a comb across who's like making money on OnlyFans sends me like, hey, you're doing just fine. I'm rubbing a comb through your hair. Like do you pay people on OnlyFans? No, 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 no. No, I don't pay that. No, but like But isn't that worse? Shouldn't you pay? Why are you so uh, why are you uh, so I should. I should, but I I mean I should pay like all of these people should be making, but like also uh people should be paying me money so like i don't know you know, <laughs> that's I think, fair right, right you know and like right. and like no and, and that's my like as i've been thinking about trying to get this to maybe eventually make some sort of money i also have been like well i, I need to subscribe to some more things so i try like i try to subscribe mostly like somewhat intelligent things but you know yeah no i i've not i don't pay money to any youtube people i also like youtube feels i have a um a a i, I look down my nose from a from a class perspective at YouTube as, as like a source of culture. Uh, I, I can't help it, but I do. Instagram is the highest then chess.com. And then YouTube, would that be your podcasting is the highest podcasting yeah. is the highest then, form of then, human endeavor Then like bound codex books, uh, books. And then, yeah. Uh, then spoken word poetry. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure. You got to have some crappier guests on um, in the near future. So I can come on and tell you why they were crappy, but otherwise we'll stick to uh, the magic of Encanto. I can't wait. Wait.